Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. So good. If you want to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, I want to talk to you out of Luke this morning. This is Palm Sunday, and this is a Palm Sunday triumphal entry text. We'll, we'll start there. We'll start there. So, Seth, why don't you help me out here? Luke chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 28 through 40. It goes like this. After telling this story, Jesus had been telling some stories. Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. And as he came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. And as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. Try that. Okay. Yeah, just, you just go to people's house and you say, I need your car. And the Lord needs it. And I'm taking your car. Uh, so they went and they found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked him, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. This text is hilarious, by the way. I mean, it is so funny. Like, this is so funny. Also, the, the little note earlier where it says uh, that the colt is, is a baby and no one had ever ridden it. And we know the next thing is going to happen, right? Like, Jesus is getting on a colt that no one has ever ridden. I grew up with horses. Let me tell you something. That's something you don't do, right? Like, this is, this is another sign of the mastery of the Lord Jesus over all of creation. So they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. And as he rode along, the crowd spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where all the road, where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his disciples began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what they're singing and crying out. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And he replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Can't do it. Can't do it. I want to talk to you this morning out of Luke chapter 19. You can just keep your Bibles open. And uh, the title of today's message is called, Yes, But Not Like That. Yes, But Not Like That. And here's what I want to do. I want to talk to you, before we get into the text this morning, about three things. I want to talk to you, number one, about growing up. Uh, Number two, I want to talk to you about order of operations. And then number three, I want to talk to you about atomic bombs. And after we talk about growing up, order of operations, and atomic bombs, then I want to talk to you about the text. Is that okay? Uh, Number one, growing up. Uh, Do you remember what it was like when you were a kid and you'd daydream about growing up? Right? Like you were like this little kid. Maybe you were like me. I think this is pretty universal. Like you're a little guy. Maybe maybe you're seven. 
or, or maybe you're 10 or, or definitely when you're 12 and you begin to daydream about growing up. And, and basically the daydream goes, goes something like this. You can't wait to grow up because when you grow up, you could stay up as long as you want, <laughs> right? Like, like here's what growing up or being a grown up means. You can stay up as long as you want. You can eat anything you want and you can watch any show you want anytime you want. So at, from, from a kid's perspective, what it meant to be a grown up was essentially the, this. Stay up late, eat whatever you want and watch whatever you want. That's what it means to be a grown up, right? No one can tell you what to do. Uh, when you're a grown up, you just have ultimate agency. You can stay up late and watch video games. No problem. Why? Because you're an adult. That's why. And if you want to have a cheeseburger and fries every single meal for two weeks in a row, that's completely fine. And it's your business because you're an adult and you make your own decisions. And if you want to binge every single episode of Yellowstone in a row with no breaks, no breaks, like literally nothing. If you want to keep a pee bottle beside you, you don't even go to the bathroom. You can do that. Why? Because you don't need parents anymore. You're an adult. This is basically the vision of adulthood. Growing up is awesome. And the reason growing up is awesome is because nobody can tell you what to do. Growing up is awesome. And then one day, one day you wake up and you realize that you're a grown up. I don't know what age that is, but one day you wake up and you realize, wow, I am a grown up now. And you realize that it really is awesome. Being a kid was awesome, but then being an adult is awesome too. And speaking as an adult, I just want to say, I don't want to go back to being a kid. Like I had a great time as a kid. It was great. I loved it. But as an adult, I just want to say being an adult is actually better. I can just, I just want to tell you being an adult is better. I don't want to go back. And growing up is awesome. But here's the kicker. It's not awesome for any of the reasons you thought it was going to be awesome. Right? Speaking as an adult, I just want to tell you this. Uh, you really can stay up late and you can eat whatever and you can watch whatever, but there are consequences built into those decisions that you never could have imagined when you were a kid. <laughs> right? Here's the thing. Like tonight, if you're an adult and you want to stay up till 3 a.m., guess what? You can, and the alarm for your job is still going to hit at 6 a.m. That's just the truth. And you had no clue that was going to happen when you were a kid, right? If you, if you today, if you want to go to Baskin Robbins and you want to go to Dunkin' Donuts and you just want to stuff your gullet with sugar for the next eight hours, you can do it. And can I tell you what will happen? You will feel like a trash boat. And no one who's a kid ever could have imagined that you were ever going to feel like a trash boat from sugar. But as an adult, I can tell you, it happens. It happens. You want to eat cheeseburgers every day? Great. Eat cheeseburgers every day and you will go to Dr. Summer and she will say your cholesterol is a million and you're going to die. Like these are things that you never could have imagined. You want to, you want to stay up late? Great. Stay up late. You want to watch whatever show you want to watch? By all means, binge Yellowstone. But here's the problem. The kids still need dinner and the yard still needs mowed. Right? Growing up, growing up is awesome. Yes, 
but not like that. It really is awesome, but not for any of the reasons you thought it was going to be awesome. Okay, number two, order of operations. Anybody here remember order of operations? Or did anybody here, let me put it this way. Anybody here remember PEMDAS? PEMDAS, what does PEMDAS stand for? P. E. M. D. A. S, you guys are doing pretty good. All right, Seth, help me out. Can we put up, can we put up my equation, please? I've lost the crowd. <laughs> half, half of you are trying to figure this out, and half of you are trying to figure out how to get out of here. You're like, okay, can I tell you something about what we have up here? You can know how to do all kinds of math. You can know, you can know multiplication. You can know division and addition. You can, know, you can know all kinds of stuff, right? Uh, you can take a problem, and with the knowledge you have, you can get all sorts of answers. Uh, who, here, who here in the room knows what 1 plus 20 is? In, in the back. Thank you. Everybody, everybody, let's go. Who, who here is a math major and knows 12 divided by 2? It's sick. Like you can know math and you can look at this and be like, well, I, I think I know how to do this. I know one plus 21, one plus 20 is 21 and 12 divided by two is six. That five minus three is two. I don't know what that other two is. <laughs> you can take your skills and get some right answers, but here's what I want you to know about this problem. Without the order of operations, the end result will be wrong. You can know all kinds of stuff about multiplication. You can know all kinds of stuff about division and addition and subtraction. But if you don't have PEMDAS in your brain, you're done. And to make it even weirder, here's the weird part. Our intuition for solving this problem doesn't help us. Your natural inclination and your natural intuition for solving this problem doesn't help you until you've had a teacher say, no, forget your intuition and trust me, it's PEMDAS. Because what is our intuition? Here, here's our basic intuition for solving this problem. You, you start at the top and you go left to right, top to bottom, right? Why? Because that's how you read. And you just assume that reading has got to be in some ways connected to math, but your math teacher looks at you and goes, no, your intuition for top to bottom, left to right will actually give you only wrong answers. The thing that feels like it should be true is actually not true at all. You have to have the order of operations. The path, the path to the right answer here is not intuitive. Even if you have math skills, the path is not intuitive. Okay, number three, I want to talk to you about atomic bombs. Who, who wants to, who, who, who here has two? The answer is two. Mark has nine. 
And I just want to say, Mark, that's why you make films. <laughs> Mark, the only reason I know the answer is because I stole it from like a Google thing. I speak for a living. Okay, atomic bombs, work with me, people. Atomic bombs. The Manhattan Project was the research and development undertaking in World War II that gave us the atomic bomb. Uh, by the way, the atomic bomb is a truly horrific weapon. It's demonic. Let me just say that. It's demonic. Uh, and, and sadly, we unleashed two of those on Japan towards the end of the conflict. And it was a, it was a sort of mathematic and engineering race between the Allies and Germany to see who could develop these instruments first. And in the end, we won. In the end, we won and we got them first. We figured out the problem first. We got the right answer. But the consequence, the consequence is now the world is a home to arsenals which could end civilization as we know it. So we get the right answers and now forever, everybody, nearly 8 billion people live on a planet that one crazy person could end in a moment of weakness. In this example, we have a, we have a, we have a short-term show of ultimate force that has long-term implications that perhaps few ever imagined in the period of their development. Here's what I think. I don't think any of the men and women who were working on that realized the world that they were creating forever afterwards. It's, it's like short-term short -term thinking, winning in the moment without conception of the future. And it underscores how things taken by force have to be maintained by force, which begs the question, what does that do to people who make those decisions? And what kind of world grows up in the gaps? Big questions, actually. And this brings us to Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into town on a donkey that no one had ever thrown their leg across. And you might be thinking, what are we doing right now, Adam? Let's talk about this for a moment. The text in Luke says that the crowds lay down their coats. That's an Old Testament echo. Basically, submission. Like you lay it down for the king. You're taking your outer garment, your most prized possession. You didn't have an entire wardrobe. You had what you had on, you know? And you're taking like, the one thing I got, I'm in fealty to the king, you know? It's a, it's a sign of submission and worship. And the crowd shouts, blessings on the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. And a couple things here for us. This is a messianic moment to the max when Jesus rides in in Luke chapter 19. Uh, it, it's a direct fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Seth, if we could put that up. Eva read it to us this morning. Uh, the passage that we read at the beginning, it's, it's that Old Testament echo of what Jesus would do in Luke chapter 19. Rejoice, people of Zion. Shout in triumph, people of Israel. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous. He's victorious. He's humble. He's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Next verse. 
I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I'll destroy all the weapons in battle. This is an echo of something that was prophesied about Jesus. And so when Jesus comes into town riding on this donkey, here's what I need you to know. Uh, everybody in the crowd knew what the symbol meant. Jesus knew what the symbol meant. It's like performance art. It's the reason he slows down. He tells his disciples, go get that donkey. Get the one that no one has ever ridden. Why? Because he knows Zechariah chapter nine. He knows that when he comes riding into town, he's telling everybody, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah and everybody knows anybody who rides into town like that is the king. And that's why they have the proclamations that they do. Jesus would have known the scripture. Everybody knew it. The people knew the scripture. Not only that, but Jesus had been healing the sick and Jesus had been driving out demons. Uh, Jesus had been walking on water. He'd been multiplying bread. Uh, he taught as one who had authority and people had rightly hoped that Jesus might be the Messiah, that he might be the king. And make no mistake about it, he was the Messiah they had hoped for. He was the king that they were hoping for. He is that king, but he's not what most people were expecting. Just a few days later, just a few days later after this moment, he was dead on a cross and no one could have expected that they would have been destroyed beyond comprehension. So here's what we have in Luke chapter 19. We have the picture of a Jesus that we hope for and a Jesus that we expect. And a few short days later, it feels or it looks like a failure. So what do you do? And people maybe thought, well, well maybe he's not the king we were hoping for. Why? Because the people were hoping that, that Jesus would bring the Jews to prominence again, make Israel great again, uh, that, he, that he'd lead an insurrection that would rid the nation of the Romans. This was the hope, that he'd, that he'd replace Caesar. The expectation was that he would kick some butt and take some names because that's the only way this sort of thing happens, right? You gotta, you gotta crack a few eggs to make an omelet. Many, many folks had the right answer, but not in the way that they imagined. Jesus' triumphal entry and then his death on the cross is cause for all of us to think about who we imagine Jesus to be and what we imagine real power to be. So Luke chapter 19, 28 through 40, this is Jesus coming as king. And this text, especially taken with what's coming, which is the cross uh, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, uh, these things taken together force us to reckon with this question. What is real power? What is real power? People assumed that Jesus had finally come to kick butt and take names. And why wouldn't they? Uh, he heals every disease. Uh, Jesus kicks out every demon. Uh, he sidesteps every religious leader. He outsmarts every smart person who tried to trap him. People assumed that Jesus would work the same jujitsu here in Jerusalem, that he'd show up and kick out the Romans, that he'd probably get an army together and that he'd be this revolutionary. But instead, instead he ends up on a cross murdered between two thieves. So the question here this morning for us is what is real power? What is real power? Uh, the world says power is might. 
Uh, the world says power is money. Uh, the world says power is getting what you want, when you want it, the way you want. It's an echo of all of us as little kids who had imaginations about what adulthood was. That's what, that's what the world says. Power is going with what feels right. Power is working off of intuition. Power is pure animal instinct, returning like for like. But the life of Jesus shows that there is a hidden order of operations at work that the world never could have imagined. The world says that power is hard pragmatism. Whatever gets you to the end, just whatever gets you to the end, whatever it takes to win, especially if there's a shortcut. Power is access to shortcuts and winning. But that's just atomic thinking that has implications that no one in the moment can conceive of. But the life of Jesus says something different. And this is the gospel this morning. The life of Jesus says that power is laying one's life down. Jesus says no one has greater love than to lay their life down. Jesus says that true power is often found in losing. Jesus says this specifically, you want to find your life, you got to lose it. You want to find your life, you actually have to lose it. This morning, this morning, if you're in the room and you feel like you've lost it, or, or maybe similarly, if you feel like you're all washed up, if you feel like your life has evaporated, if you feel like you're not amounting to much, uh, good news for you. You might just be in the grip of grace. Good news for you. For anyone who's washed up, you may be closer to God than you've ever been before. Uh, Jesus, says, Jesus says that a seed has to be planted in the ground in order for there to be a harvest. Uh, that's taken from John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, he's talking about his own life. And here's what I want to tell you about seeds planted. Uh, when you're planted, or in the case of Jesus, when you're buried, when you're buried, uh, you're hidden. Uh, you're covered up. You're walked over. And here's what I would like to say about power this morning from the life of Jesus. Power, real power, the kingdom's power is often being hidden, is often covered, and is often obscure. Real power is often hidden, covered, and obscured. It's the opposite of obvious. The world says power is obvious. Jesus, by his own life, says it's probably not. It's probably obscure. Not only that, but the literature here in Luke chapter 19 underscores this point. I love this. Uh, and if, in case you were ever wondering, uh, the, the people who wrote the Gospels were pure geniuses. Like the, even, even from a literature standpoint, it's telling this same story. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, Jesus is in Jericho. A little bit of geography for you here this morning. Uh, Jericho is, uh, is a low city. In fact, it's one of the lowest points 
on earth. It's below sea level. So imagine you're way down here, right? And Jesus takes the long walk from the lowest city, one of the lowest places on the planet, and he walks all the way up to Jerusalem, which is a mountain of a sort. Jesus, and Luke is showing, Luke is showing us this morning that, that Jesus is showing us what is, what is real what is real power? What, what, is real, what does it really mean to be raised up? What does it really mean to be, to be visible in this world? And what it really means is this. It means you're taking that long walk from the lowest place to the highest place, not just Jerusalem, but the highest moment of Jesus's life would have been when he was raised up even a few feet further on the cross in Jerusalem. And it is this paradoxical flip in the kingdom. It's not your greatness that makes you great. It's your self-sacrificing love, the ways in which you give yourself for the world freely, the ways in which you, you, you take on the things that no one wants to take on. This is what true power is. It's not will to power. It's not Nietzsche. It is, it is the love and sacrifice of Jesus who walks from the lowest place to the highest place only to be killed by his enemies. Jesus would rather be killed by his enemies than kill his enemies. This is the good news of God. The world says power is avoidance. Avoidance of pain and discomfort. But Jesus shows that power is often acceptance and steadfast determination to meet opposition with humility. I want to talk to you about our fear this morning as we're wrapping up. Here's our fear. Here's my fear. I'll personalize it. My fear is that if I live like this, if I live like Jesus, I won't make it. My fear is that if I, if I really do the Jesus thing, I'll miss the good somehow. That's the problem. I, can pre I, just, I just preached the paint off of this wall 30 seconds ago. I really did. And y'all even were like, yeah, it's pretty good. There'll be people on the audio archive who are like, that was good, you know. But I, can I tell you when, when I go home, when I go home, my fear is that if I actually do the Jesus thing, if I, if I commit to losing my life, if I commit to self-sacrificial love, my fear is that if I don't become a pain avoider, instead, if I like reach out and give the best I have to people that I maybe don't want to, my fear is that I'll miss out on the good. That's my fear. Or, or my fear is that evil will prevail. Or, or, or we, we, we fear this, that good will be diminished. Or we fear this, that God will let us down. Like maybe he raised Jesus up, but will he raise us up? Or, or my fear is this, can I trust God in my hiddenness? Or, or this, can I trust God in the places where it feels like I'm losing? You know, some of us, some of us know that God is actually calling you to a hidden life. And you're like, I'm really afraid of that because it feels like I'm going to miss out on some good essential thing, you know? If you lose your life, man, maybe it won't, maybe it'll be crap on Instagram. You know, like if I, if I lose my life, then, 
maybe I won't be a big enough splash in the end or or maybe maybe I'll never self-actualize. I want to talk to you about the victory of God to wrap this up. The victory of God is in self-giving sacrificial love. I read this tweet from Glenn Packiam yesterday. Seth, can we put this up? Glenn, in less than 280 characters, preached the sermon better than I could. This is what he says. He says, the palm branches were a symbol of revolution and the cult was a symbol of victory and royalty. But neither the palm branches nor the cult become the central symbol for Christians. Instead, it's the cross The revolution and the victory result from self-giving, sacrificial love. That's the victory of God. The victory of God is not more money or status. True, True power is not political victories. True power is not political victories. For us as Christians, we actually don't care who's in Washington because we have a king in heaven. And there's people to serve around us right here. And can I tell you something? There's plenty go- going on in Campbellsville. Like, like we, could, we could forget Washington for the rest of our lives. Let me tell you something. There is stuff going on in Campbellsville, Kentucky that needs people to live out the example of Jesus Christ's self-giving sacrificial love, like right here. There are kids in our community who have the worst growing up experiences, the worst. And here's what they need. They need teachers. They need coaches. They need neighbors. They need foster parents. They need, uh, they need cops. We need judges. We need, we need neighborhoods. We need, we need like citizens who are like living in this town with, with the model of Jesus Christ and the victory of God, who cares who's in Frankfurt or who's in Washington? The work is here. Jesus said the fields are white, but the workers are few. Like this is the victory of God. The victory of God is not like who gets more votes in a popularity contest. The victory of God is who will internalize losing their life for kids and for drug people who are everywhere in this town who have no clue. And what they need is the self-sacrificing, generous, open-handed love of Jesus alive in my life. The victory of God is not being at the top of an earthly hierarchy. Who cares about hierarchy structures? Who cares? Who cares? Philippians chapter 2. Jesus becomes the one with a name above every name, not because he, he climbs atop some hierarchy structure. He gets the name above every name because he descends to the lowest place, the place of a servant. Here's what that means. It means if you're at the bottom this morning, It means if you're a nobody, it means if you're weak, it means if you've been hidden, good news, you are in the grip of the crucified and buried and raised Son of God. That's the good news. And if you're not, 
you can't be. That's the good news. What Jesus has done in, in his own life, what God has done in the Son, he will do for everyone in this room. This is the good news. He's the weak, the hidden, the covered up king of the world. Yes, but not like that. He's the king. He really is, but not like anybody expected. And this is good news. Good news. We're going to preach more good news next week. Mm -hmm. We're going to preach more good news next week. Here's what I want to do this morning. If you're on the band, come on up. And I want to invite the whole room. I want to invite the whole room into trusting God the way that Jesus trusts God. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.